Hey everybody, nice to be back with you all. Sorry about the little um, snafu time-wise with the announcements and stuff. This is an experiment. Uh, for those of you who may be new, this social gathering thing, as Andy suggested, we've been doing, geez, what, four or five months now. Um, and we're trying the, the alternation from the one o'clock standard time, which is what we've done up until today. We're trying the six o'clock thing and we'll just see how it goes. Um, if we find there's a better response with the one o'clock deal, we'll simply kick it back to that slot. But um, I was just trying to make it a little bit more available for people who work and, and uh, can't make the one o'clock. So hard to make uh, it completely satisfactory for everybody, but we, we do our best. Um, so a couple little kind of housekeeping things. The, uh, for those of you who are nightclub members, the interview with Elizabeth Namgyal was just posted. That was a really delightful event. Um, I've also been in contact with some really interesting people. Uh, I develop a kind of a pen pal relationship with this Islamic scholar who actually uh, used to teach a, a professor at Toronto who's now in Baghdad. And he's been sending me the most amazing emails about um, Sufi mystical approaches to bardos and also dream yoga, which I had zero idea about. And so I'm, I'm going to extend an invitation for him to actually present for us as well, because he's, uh, he's a treasure trove um, so far. And also uh, I'm actually meeting with uh, David Lloyd next week, um, who lives in the area. Um, I'm gonna see if I can get him to come by and chat with us for a little bit, because he's one of the most impactful sensitive thinkers, um, I believe, in the planet today when it comes to like um, socially engaged activist approaches of, from a Buddhist kind of stance. So he's a really sensitive thinker. So that's, that's a, hopefully coming up. For sure, this Saturday, um, two o'clock webinar on um, the first webinar in a series on the actual stages of lucid dreaming. So that'll be going on the Saturday at two o'clock. Um, Andy will post for that. Um, I'm doing a, a really fun program next weekend at Yogaville. And I think Prem, who's been a, a fantastic contributor in the chat columns, will, will set up the link for that. I'm really excited about this. Um, I'll be talking a little bit more with her this weekend about some specifics. But this is gonna be a really nice dive into the world of the Bardos um, starting, I believe, next Friday, not this week, but a Friday, the Friday next. So I'm quite excited about that. I'm sure she'll post a link. So look in the chat box for that. Um, the other thing that I'm, that I'm really pretty jazzed about is, and this is, uh, you know, you can see with my backdrop, I got rid of the, I got some really funny comments um, <clears throat> from the last green screen I had with how the moon made me look, let's say, I guess it was like this, right? You know, so I had these evil horns coming out. So, this, my book is out. I'm super excited about that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about it today because I, I made a bit of a um, promise to the Sounds True people that are publishing it that I would talk just a little bit about it, which I'm actually happy to do this week and then maybe a little bit next week. But what the one thing I did want to share with you is um, because of the subtlety and the depth of this book, this is definitely my deepest dive book yet, my fifth book, we are going to be starting in uh, actually a month, September 22nd, uh, an ongoing book study group on this text. Um, I was inspired to do this um, for a number of reasons. One was I participated in an event like this with Ken Wilber, ah, geez, 10, 15 years ago when he published 
I think one of his best books called Integral Spirituality, um, minor masterpiece. And so Ken spent, ooh, man, I don't know how many hours going through the book. And it was so rewarding. It was such a rich event to be able to have him speak about the book, run commentary on it, and then entertain questions that, that I thought, hey, why not do the same thing with this puppy? And so it's going to be an hour. Um, I think it's Tuesday night. An hour of, of, of me talking and presenting, reading, and doing kind of like behind the scenes stuff. Like, um, you know, the title, for instance, Dreams of Light was not the original title. Um, so I'm going to talk about what the original title was and just kind of behind the scenes activities. And then um, there's going to be like a, a 30 minute, somewhat optional, actually, everything's optional, but QA. So people can bring, you know, Andy's going to be moderating um, a full half hour where people can really start to ask questions and hopefully we won't have to leave people hanging. We'll be able to entertain as many questions as we can. So I'm quite excited about that because um, the book itself is, I think, um, I mean, of course I think it's cool because I wrote the damn thing. <laughs> but anyway, so these are some of the things that are coming up. Um, let's start with our one breath meditation session, right? We started doing some kind of emergency, what I call emergency practices back in, in uh, um, March. And so I find it very helpful to return to these. Um, so before we actually start with my little riff for today, and then of course, as usual, I'll do that for 20 minutes or so. Then I think we have uh, one or two written questions. And then just like before, this is just a, a discussion platform to talk about virtually anything you guys want. But let's start with our one breath meditation session. So for the duration of one inhalation and one exhalation, I read something interesting. There, there's a lot of, um, traffic these days with, with breathing and, and even breathing coaches. I was actually listening to, to Bubba Watson, who's, many of you may know him, he's, he won the Masters, I think twice, a really terrific golfer. And he was talking about how um, on the course, his biggest issue is, is not the physicality of the game, but any of you who play golf will, will re relate to this, the mental side. And so he actually is working with a breathing coach and I heard this number before Bubba was talking about it um, recently, that what he does now is for um, a count of five. So um, inhalation, five, you know, you count to five, one, two, three, four, five. Exhalation, you count to five. Um, I just tossed that out into the mix because there are some really interesting um, studies that show, for instance, that breathing is, is dramatically um, reduced and shallow in people who suffer from uh, acute depression, for instance. Um, in fact, I had one patient tell me once who was depressed that you know, she said, it feels like I have no space inside. Um, and so just as an invitation to see if it works for you, when we do this one breath meditation, just for the heck of it, see what it feels like if you extended the inhalation, you do a, a, babe, a, a belly breathing, baby breathing, you know, um, extend your belly, for a duration of five, one, two, three, four, five counts, and then a slow exhalation or one, two, three, four, five, and just see how that works for you. Um, I find this particular practice, as I mentioned, you know, months ago to be extremely effective. So here we go, or here we don't go. <laughs> one breath meditation session.
that's it. Meditation session accomplished for today. I love it. So I do want to say a couple things about this book. Um, this is a little bit of a segue prelude to what we'll be doing with the book study group. Um, just to give you a sense of, of what this baby is about, it's the second book in a trilogy, what I am playfully labeling as my dream trilogy. Um, the first one is the Dream Yoga book that came out a couple of years ago. And then of course, this little guy, right? There it is in living color. This is the second volume. And in many ways, this, this book has been 30 years in the making because it's really the distillation of a tremendous amount of research from a vast array of sources um, centered under around the Buddhist teachings uh, uh, on dream yoga, um, but drawing on philosophy and cognitive neuroscience and developmental psychology, quantum mechanics, um, all over the place to um, fundamentally substantiate the illusory nature of reality. And so my aspiration, I'll get back to that in just a second, my aspiration in writing this book was twofold. One was to give an on-ramp, to create an on-ramp um, for people who are really interested in these nocturnal meditations. Um, and these nocturnal meditations, for those of you who may be new to that term, that's my phraseology, there are five of them in my kind of mapping or cartography. There's what's called liminal dreaming, um, which is kind of this pre and post dream state. And then there's lucid dreaming, then there's dream yoga, sleep yoga, and then bardo yoga. And the big sellers these days are of course lucid dreaming and to some extent dream yoga. And so I wrote this book. Um, the first aspiration is that for those of you who have ever tried lucid dreaming, you know, there's so much promised with this material. Lucid dreaming is really extraordinary. It has tremendous pedagogical potential. Um, in fact, I go so far as to argue that really, in my estimation, it represents the education of the future. Literally, you know, we enter the dream state by some estimates um, 500,000 times, 500,000 dreams in a life. 25% of our sleeping time is devoted to to the dream state, that amounts to about a month, a year. If you do the math on that in an average life, that's about six years of your life is spent dreaming. And so you can literally, you can get a PhD in less than six years. And so once the induction methods are refined and lucid dreaming becomes a little bit more available to people, um, it really does represent a, re a revolution in education, you know, a form of night school, as I playfully refer to it. And the benefits of lucid dreaming alone before you even get to things like dream yoga or the, the even deeper practices of sleep yoga and bardo yoga, lucid dreaming alone, the benefits are just, they're almost too good to be true. They're really astounding. Um, psychological benefits, uh, therapeutic benefits, physical benefits, it's just amazing. But for those of you who probably have tried it, so much is promised, so little is delivered, right? Lucid dreaming is not easy. And there's a host of reasons why it's not easy. Um, the third book that I'm now drafting in this series is in fact a really deep dive about why is it so bloody hard? A really exhaustive integral approach to the difficulties of lucidity. But I wrote this book because there is a very powerful daytime practice in addition to meditation 
that uh, greases the skids for nocturnal lucidity. And this, of course, is the daytime practice of illusory form. Um, in fact, this practice is so foundational that in many of the classic texts um, in, in the meditative texts that I was trained in, the practice of illusory form is actually the main practice. That's the main gig. Dream yoga, lucid, lucid dreaming is actually designed to support the practice of illusory form. And so therefore, um, the practice of illusory form has a really interesting relationship to lucid dreaming and dream yoga. On one level, it's the, like I just mentioned, it is a fantastic preparatory practice. It's a way to really um, grease the skids to have lucidity. The more you do the practice of illusory form, the more you're going to have lucid dreams. My, my experience bears this out. In fact, Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, the great um, master from what is now Pakistan, Udiana, he's the guy that brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. And in his teaching on dream yoga, he goes so far as to say that the practice of illusory reform is, is not only the principal preparatory practice for, for lucid dreaming dream yoga, it's also the principal antidote. Um, so obviously it's therefore a really big deal. And so the practice of illusory reform, and I'll tell you exactly what illusory reform means and give you some, even some practice um, tips to, to start to work with it. The practice of illusory reform really prepares the way for lucidity. And what's really interesting is that when the practice of illusory reform and dream yoga are actually brought to fruition, it leads to the absolute kind of the, uh, the fruition of both those practices is, is what's called perfectly pure illusory form. In other words, to see the world as illusion is actually the fruition. And what that really means is what this book is about. What does it really mean to say that this world is a dream, dreamlike or illusory by nature? And so this is what makes uh, illusory form really interesting in relationship to um, lucid dreaming and dream yoga. It's the alpha and then the omega. And so you start with what's called um, impure illusory form. And I'll give you some of these practices right away. It's called impure because it's still conceptual. You still have to kind of think about it and actually do it. But when the practice is refined, it culminates in what's called perfectly pure illusory form. And the reason it's called perfectly pure is because it's purified of conceptuality. In other words, you're no longer faking it. So the practice of illusory form is, is the kind of ultimate fake it till you make it practice, right? I mean, we don't see the world as an illusion, most of us. We don't see this world as a dream. And so we kind of have to fake it. And I'll give you some of these faking techniques in just a second. But eventually, as Gyatso Rinpoche and others say, because you're engaged with a practice that is actually in resonance with reality, um, this particular daytime practice of illusory reform facilitates the recognition of reality as it actually is. Uh, and so the other unique relationship of illusory reform to lucid dreaming and dream yoga is they're also what are called reciprocating practices or bidirectional. And what this means, I alluded to this earlier, is that the more you do the practice of illusory reform, the, the fruition results in more lucid dreams. The more stability you attain in the lucid dream state in a bidirectional way, those insights then kind of pipe back in 
and actually augment and support the daytime practice of illusory form. So you're creating this kind of virtuous circle, positive feedback loop, where both practices support each other. And so I playfully refer to this as opening uh, interstate commerce, interstate between two states of consciousness, daytime and, and dreamtime. You're opening up this kind of traffic between these two and allowing the, uh, you know, the commerce of insights to flow back and forth. Um, and so this practice is foundational in the world of dream yoga. You won't really find it so much, if at all, in the world of lucid dreaming, but it is absolutely integral to the practice of dream yoga. And here's the other reason this, that this practice is so compelling, is that even if you never have a single lucid dream, the practice of illusory form brings you to the same fundamental insights, the same levels of realization. You're just simply deriving that realization doing daytime practice. And so this is super helpful and important for people who are really interested in things like dream yoga, but like, hey man, I, I just cannot have a lucid dream. Well, you know, not to worry. The, the same insights that the, the daytime practice of illusory form um, leads you to are exactly the same fruitional aspects that dream yoga leads you to. And on one level, this really shouldn't be a surprise because fundamentally you're just working with mind in two different states. And so there, you know, one of the images I use, it's, it's, um, like, a, a it's like a spiral staircase that comes up to a point where originally these two states of consciousness can appear different. Dreaming state, waking state seem pretty different. But with fruition in both lucid dreaming, dream yoga, and then the practice of illusory form, not only does it connect, you know, bridge these two states, but eventually it shows you their fundamental unity. And so this is one, one of the reasons I wrote this book. The second one, which I'm gonna talk about more next week, is that the, the practice of illusory form um, will show you just how far these nocturnal practices can actually take you. And that's a little bit of what I'm intimating and suggesting right now, but I'm gonna to return to that next week. But what I wanna do in the minutes or so that I have before I open it up um, for, for question and discussion, is that I wanna say a little bit more about what illusion actually means and then give you a flavor for the actual practice. So when we talk about the world as illusory, what does it really mean? Well, it has a very specific meaning. It, it means that in the simplest way that looks can be deceiving, that the way things appear is not in harmony with the way things actually are. And again, this ties in beautifully to the whole dream scene, right? Because this is what defines the difference between a lucid and a non-lucid dream. So in a non-lucid dream, looks are totally deceiving. You're experiencing something and you take it, you mistake it to be real. That's what defines a non-lucid dream. Appearance is not in harmony with reality. You're dreaming and you don't know it. When you attain lucidity in a dream, something clicks you into the fact, hey, whoa, this is a dream. Now appearance is now, it's now in harmony with reality. You're actually seeing the dream for what it is. And that therefore launches you into the, to the world of lucid dreaming and then all the practices that ensue upon it. And so in exactly the same way, 
um, the practice of loose reform takes this foundational tenet that the way things appear is not in harmony with the way things actually are. And now it applies it to this, this thing. Um, it, because this is really, this world you know, that you're looking at right now, this is actually the, the primary dream. In the Buddhist tradition, they talk about three types of dream. The nighttime dream, what we know as the nighttime dream, that's actually called the example dream or the double delusion. That's very interesting. The main dream is this. This is the main dream. This is what the Buddha woke up from, woke up um, to, actually, woke up from the nightmare of a, dual, a dualistic world and into the reality of non-duality. Um, and so just to complete the picture, the third dream is called the dream at the end of time. And this, of course, are, are the bardo, bardo teachings, what happens actually after we die. And so just ever so briefly, parenthetically, the reason that's of some interest, um, and this is the kind of thing I'll be talking about at the Yogaville program, is that very often people ask, well, you know, where do you go when you die? What happens when you die? Well, you simply transition from one dream to the next. You simply transition from one dream to the next. And so in the title, Dreams of Light, dream is a, is a multivalent term in the title. It's code word for manifestation of mind. And so that's why understanding all this dream business is more, it's more than just a kind of cognitive video game. You're talking about the nature of mind and reality here. And so by understanding the dreamlike nature of this, you start to realize, really deeply understand that when you die, you're simply transitioning from one dream to the next, um, a process of what's called nested or recursive dreaming. And so this stuff also has a very deep interconnection, uh, uh, connection, intimate connection to the Bardo teachings, the dream at the end of time. And so the practice of a loose reform is a brilliant practice. It's what I write about in the book. It's an ATV practice. It's an all-terrain vehicle practice, all states of practice, where you can apply the fundamental tenets of the practice of loose reform to every single state of consciousness. Um, and that's where it has so much traction. Um, you know, that's where it has so much power because you can apply it to everything when you start to realize that everything is, in fact, the nature of dream. And so I, um, before I open it up, I want to give you some sense of what the practices are like. The practice of a loose reform comes in three kind of styles or flavors, so to speak. Um, the practice of a loose body, uh, practice of a loose speech, and the practice of a loose mind. And so just to give you some sense of the practice of a loose body, this is the easiest one on some level. Literally what you do here, many of you who are students of the Buddhist tradition, you know this. I mean, for instance, the absolute um, bodhicitta slogans and the lojong slogans, you know, a number of, of these practices, you know, in post-meditation, one should become a child of illusion, that type of thing. A number of these slogans are exactly about um, the kind of the Mahayana application of this type of practice. And so what you do here that may seem patronizingly simple, but if you engage in it, it really has a bit of power, is as often as you can throughout the day, pause, look around, and with as much conviction as you can muster, you simply say to yourself, almost like a mantra, this is a dream. I'm dreaming. This really is a dream. I've done this with Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, the great Bund teacher who teaches quite a bit on dream yoga. He does it, you know, with his groups, 200 people in the room, 
we all start kind of chanting, whispering, kind of this semi-audible recitation, this is a dream, this is a dream. You do it for a couple minutes and it's a little bit interesting what actually happens to your world. You can also harness this as a question, am I dreaming, am I dreaming? The idea is to question authority, to question the status of appearance. So that's a very easy kind of entry level practice of illusory body. In the book, um, what I do is I pepper uh, several dozen of each one of these throughout the book because the material is kind of thick, it's a little bit dense. So to ventilate it and to also bring the material into life, I pepper in these practices. And so this is just one of about a dozen that are connected to the practice of illusory body. And uh, obviously when we go through the book study group, we're gonna go through all of them. Some of these I kind of adapted in my own extensive retreat practice. Other the others are kind of refinements from the tradition about how to bring about the realization that this is in fact a dream. So the practice of illusory speech is also a really interesting one. It's very powerful um, because even though words are not as solid as seeming matter, they still have impact. A, a, literally a war, a, a, a war of words can trigger a literal war. And when someone curses you in the face, you know, F you, you know, you feel like you're being hit. Or when someone whispers in your ear, you know, I love you, it can just melt your heart. So words have tremendous power. Um, and so the practice of illusory speech is to see through the power that we confer upon words. And one way to do this, that there are a number of ways to do this, but one way to do this is to take a word, a neutral word like car, right? Say that word, take this word car, say it over and over and over for just a couple minutes. And notice how you strip that word of its meaning. It loses its impact and is actually deconstructed into just mere sound. Then what you can do is take a really charged word, and I won't say these because they're so offensive, but take, take a really nasty four-letter word, N-word, whatever, a really nasty word, and do the same thing with that. And see how much longer it takes to deconstruct that word because that word has been invested with even more power. So these practices are no small thing. I mean, what they will do is, is fundamentally allow you to relate in a very practical way to praise and blame in a completely new way. When someone criticizes you after you engage in this practice, the, you still hear the words, but they just don't have the same impact anymore. They pass through you like harmless neutrinos. And when someone gives you this you know, great compliment or whatever inflates your ego, then you're, neither, you know, you're also not lifted up and inflated that much. You start to relate to language in a more equanimous way. Um, and so this quality of developing equanimity towards speech is, is enormous. And the power of language, I mean, philosophers for hundreds of years have, have really very cogently talked about how it is that the power of language is largely do, is largely at play in the construct of way, the way we see reality. The way we see the world is largely dictated by language. And so the practice of illusory speech therefore helps us to work with transforming our relationship to reality altogether 
by transforming our, our relationship to language and sound. And so there are dozens and dozens of other exercises I offer in the book. One classic kind of archaic one um, is, is in the literature, it says, you know, you go to a canyon and you, and you shout praises into the canyon and the echo comes back, or you shout insults into the canyon and the echo comes back. Um, obviously, you know, you can still do that if you can find a place, but um, other ways to do this is, is literally, you can record insults and praises. It seems really kind of contrived and artificial, but trust me, if you do it, it really carries some weight. The literature also says you can get your teacher, your guru, to also praise you and blame you um, and see how that also uh, lifts you up or takes you down. So um, it's actually quite a sophisticated practice. There's a great deal more to say about it. And again, that's what we'll be exploring in the book study group. The last one is the practice of illusory mind. This is just a refined way to look at meditation. And even though illusory mind is the most subtle of the three, it's not the most ineffectual. In fact, it's the most powerful. What we say and what we do is usually driven by what we think. So the practice of illusory mind is, is a very subtle traditional way to refine our understanding of meditation. So that the thoughts that arise in our mind um, now also have much less impact than they previously did. They're not as solid as words, and they're not as solid as matter, but thoughts and emotions dictate largely what we do in this life. And so through the practice of illusory mind, you know, one of the jingles is we start to relate to our mind instead of from it. We start to see thoughts for what they really are, just the energetic play of light. And this again is, is a part of the code language in this title, Dreams of Light. Um, there's a, quite a bit of traffic in the book about the multivalent usage of this term, how it's embedded in the word enlightenment, how thoughts are the play of light, how literally matter, um, in fact, David Bohm wrote about this quite beautifully, matter is literally condensed or frozen light. Nando Shaiva Tantra of Ajayana Buddhism also assert that the world is made of light. Um, and so this is a, a topic that we have a lot of traffic with in the book and that we also play with in relationship, not only to illusory mind, but illusory speech and illusory body. Um, so I will say a little bit more about this next week. I, I wanna give a little bit more of an overview of the three parts of the book, but I usually try to limit my little riff um, to about this time. And so Andy, if we've got some questions, we can start with those. And then as usual, if you guys have some things you wanna ping my way, um, questions, comments, offerings, again, it's not just me, the part of this charter, is to share in the collective wisdom of all of you um, some of the poems and, and, and uh, sayings that have been offered over the last couple of months have been really beneficial to me. So it doesn't have to be a question. It can also be just a contribution or an offering. But we start with a question because that usually seems to be the way to launch things up. So fire away. All right, great. My puppy's in the background. He's got a question too, I guess. <laughs> all right, this first is a chat question. I have a long history of sleep issues and insomnia. Good sleep seems like a basic step towards lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Can you give a simple step to work on this? Uh, simple step. I'm not sure there's such a simple step, but I can certainly give you some steps for sure. Um, yeah, first of all, absolutely. I agree with, with what you're saying that, you know, the infrastructure to um, good nocturnal practice is good sleep. 
And so this starts with a number of things. I'm thinking where I have resources posted. If you're a member of my club, the interview I did with Dr. Nevin Aurora, who, who works, he's a physician, sleep doctor who works in this field. We talk a lot about this sort of thing with him. Um, also in the, one of the earlier webinars, I know for sure that I spend the better part of an entire webinar talking about good sleep hygiene. So there's, there's so many really powerful ways to bring about good sleep. Um, another resource that comes immediately to mind, I mentioned this book a number of times, Matthew Walker, he's a, a neuroscientist out of UC Berkeley, wrote a really fine book a couple of years ago called Why We Sleep. I highly recommend it. So, um, so much to say here. If you're having problems with insomnia, that's addressed in the conversation, not only with Nevin, but I just remembered also Dr. Tucker Peck, PhD. We talk about, in both these conversations, we talk about CBTI, um, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. This is a very, um, very powerful, effective, powerfully effective non-pharmacologic um, cognitive behavioral approach that works with insomnia, hence CBTI, that is beyond the scope of what I can present here. But I know for a fact in my conversation with Tucker Peck and with Nevin, we talk about this. Um, so I highly recommend if you work with insomnia to learn about CBTI, either in those venues or just Google it. Sleep hygiene itself is, is um, just ever so briefly, again, lots to say here, both psychological and spiritual sleep hygiene. So Psychological hygiene, let's just keep it a little bit simple. Some really common threads that absolutely positively work. Um, so much to say here. Uh, avoid alcohol. Um, keep your room about you know, 66 degrees Fahrenheit is the sweet spot. Keep it really dark. If you need to wear eye muffs, do that. Keep it really quiet. If you need to wear earplugs or white noise, use that. Um, Try not to exercise three hours before you go to sleep. Get a lot of sunshine during the day, which works with regulation and release of melatonin. Melatonin is the, the circadian rhythm kind of inducer, the biological clock. And so what this also means is that as you go to sleep, um, get away from light sources, especially blue light. Many studies have shown that blue light retards, inhibits the release of this Dracula hormone, as they put it, the vampire hormone that only comes out at night, which is melatonin. So studies have shown, a lot of studies have shown that starting, depending on what kind of light you're using, blue light in particular, tablets, that kind of thing, um, if, you, if you don't have a filter for these, back away from those puppies 90 minutes before you go to sleep. Because otherwise what it does is it's messing with your circadian rhythm. Um, what else? Um, Habituation and routine, um, try to maintain a steady routinized pattern, getting to waking up at the same time, going to sleep around the same time every day. Maps are good, but not if they're taken too late and not if they last more than a half an hour. Um, I think that's probably enough. You know, there's um, a lot more to say about that. Um, exercise, of course, again, is really great, but not too close to bedtime. I think I mentioned meals, don't eat too late because that can also kind of uh, decrease the um, kind of meta meta metabolic processes that are conducive to sleep. Um, and so fundamentally, if you work with these, and then again, there's a whole battery of other so-called spiritual techniques 
that um, I will be writing, um, in fact, I've written about it. I have another book coming out this year in December where I go into all this gritty nitty stuff in, in quite a bit of detail. So, you know, stay awake for the next six months. <laughs> stay awake for the next six months, get that book and all the secrets are in that one. But something like that. But listen to the, the talk with Tucker Peck um, and then Nevin Aurora. Um, we get into this quite a bit because good sleep is, is super important. And, and the data is unequivocal here. I mean, the less you sleep, the less you live. Um, it's, it's directly correlative to health. And it, the, the data here is extraordinary. And this is where books like Matthew Walker's is so helpful because he goes into the science behind this in, in really elegant detail. So maybe that's enough because it's just such a monumental topic. So something like that, okay? All right, thanks, Andrew. I'll post the links to the Tucker Peck and the Nevin um, interviews in Great. the chat. Thanks. All right, here's another chat question. This is from Meg. In reading Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche's book on sleep and dream yoga, he says women should sleep on a different side than men. Can you comment on this difference? Yes, I can. It depends on the tradition. In the Buntro tradition, which Tenzin Wangyal represents, which is principally the correlate in the Buddhist tradition would be the Nyingma tradition. The classic texts, in fact, say exactly what Rinpoche says and what you shared, that uh, men lie down on the right side, women lie down on the left side. There, there are um, interesting subtle body reasons for doing this. It has to do with blocking off the, the flow of prana through um, the different channels. The, when you lie down on the right side, that allegedly tends to um, close down what's called the, the moon nectar um, prana, which flows through the masculine um, right side, opens up the channel on the left side through, um, no, I'm sorry, sun poison prana is the male energy that's closed off when you lie down on the right. That opens up the left side, which is the feminine moon nectar side. So there's a lot to say here, but here's the real interesting thing about this is my dear friend, Stephen LeBerge, and this is where I really have to tip my hat to him. He's done the research on this thing and his studies have shown that um, both men and women profit more by lying down on the right side. And so do with this what you want. You know, the Nyingmas and the Bunpos say that yes, women should lie down on the left, men should lie down on the right. Stephen LeBerge and his studies have shown scientifically that both men and women do better when they lie down on the right. So what are you gonna capitulate to? Um, I have to say, I capitulate to the science. Um, and in fact, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, is, as you may know, made this outrageously brave comment quite a few years ago when he said that if science, if rigorous science contradicts the teachings of the Buddha, we should capitulate to the, to the science. That's an, that's an amazing statement. I mean, how many religious leaders of world traditions would say something like that? So this, do with this what you want, but I, I actually agree with His Holiness. And if the methodology through studies like Stevens shows that it's more efficacious to lie down on the right side, I would recommend for, for females to, write, to, to do that. But then again, be your own scientist, do your own science, try it. See what happens when you lie down on the right side, block off the right nostril, flip over on the other side, see what happens when you lie down on the left, do your own science and see what happens for you. Fundamentally, um, that's gonna be the bottom line is you just see what works for you. But uh, I can go further with this if you want, but it has to do 
with the way the life force energy flows through these channels as we lie down to sleep. Um, the general instruction, not only in the dream yoga literature, but also in bardo yoga, is you want to sleep, dream, and die in a feminine state, which is very interesting. And so if you look at the, the classic pictures of what's called the lion, uh, sleeping lion mudra, um, it's the position you see it in all these statues and paintings. You know, the Buddha's lying down on his right side, popping his head up. Allegedly, that's the way he died. And so the idea, I, I, again, this is my extrapolation on this. It, it, it's really kind of fascinating to me, is that when you die, and also when you're, by the way, falling into deep dreamless sleep, you're returning to the primordial matrix or the mother of your mind. And again, we shouldn't anthropomorphize this um, too much, but the, because fundamentally everything is equanimous and androgynous in this deepest sense, but you're returning to, to the great mother Prajnaparamita when you die. You're returning to, you know, emptiness is considered feminine in this tradition. And so that's where we go when we die. That's where we go in deep dreamless sleep. And so that the, the Dream Yoga and also Bhado literature suggests it's um, a, an intelligent thing to do to conduce to to bring about conditions that are conducive to dying in this kind of feminine state, which I think is is really interesting, more open, receptive, accommodating. So that's the kind of the inner physiology behind that kind of thing. So something like that. All right, great. Well, I see Lindsay has her hand raised, so let's give the audio to Inzi to Lindsay. Hi, Andrew. Oh, Lindsay, oh, look at you. What, yeah, what, what are you like? Are you like a llama in a drug department or where are you, I, man? I got this in Chengdu in the Tibetan quarter, uh, you know, where all those uh, shops oh, totally. catering to llamas uh, are in Chengdu. I love it. But where the heck are you? Are you like a closet meditator here or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got like so little room. I've carved out a space in my office here. <laughs> That's awesome, anyway, I wanted to just say how excited I am to hear you talking about this nitty gritty approach and these next six months of depth teachings and oh, your new you, book, which I'm looking forward to unpacking with you. And man, go for it. You are right on the <laughs> cusp of the transmission of the lineage mind and uh, good for you. Keep it up. Full speed ahead. That means a lot to me. Thank you. I had a question about dream yoga. You know how when you're doing dream yoga and you become lucid in the dream, you look at the nature of your mind and notice that what's missing is the one who takes appearances as real. Or maybe when you're out of the dream state, you recognize that what was missing there was the one that takes things as real and then when you're doing the daytime practice of dream yoga mm -hmm. you're looking at appearances with that same mind that's in the dream state that's looking at whether appearances are real correct you know is that illusory form practice yes yes <clears throat> And, and as you know, Lindsay, you know, it, 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 illusory form, like I suggested, has these, I mentioned two, but it has these kind of three levels, right? There's the impure illusory form, which is the fake it part. What you're talking about is kind of a bridge between, and I did not mention the middle one between impure and perfectly pure, 
there's actually a middle bandwidth of, of illusory form that you probably are familiar with, Lindsay, which is, of course, is what's it's called pure illusory form. This is really connected to dream yoga and really connected to yidam practice fundamentally. And so what you're talking about is working with illusory form in the bandwidths between pure and perfectly pure illusory form. So you're spot on, my friend. It's the same thing. Yes. Thank so you. as I can tell, as usual, you, you just go right to the nintig. You got it. Very nice. Thanks. Yeah, nice to see you. I love your, I love your gigs, man. Just so cool. Thanks, Lindsay. Great question. Very subtle. Thank you. All right, great. And uh, next up uh, with a hand raised is Raheem. All right. Unmute myself. Am I unmuted? Hi. Okay. You are. Right. And um, so, Andrew, um, when I'm lucid in a dream, so I'm thinking the architecture of the mind's not going to change whether it's doing my practice in daytime or in sleep time. Can I go into meditation? Should I try to do meditation in the dream? Mm -hmm. in, in, in my in some of the tantras that we practice in the Shampa, there, there's a lot of prayers that say, um, please bless me with the deity arising in a lucid dream. So um, should, we do, should I do that also? Uh, are you a student of Lama Paulin? What's that? Are you a student of Lama Paulin? Um, in the Shankar? I'm just curious. Or Yeah. Fantastic. Good for you. So you broke up a little bit in the very last part. There were two questions. Reiterate the, the second question. You said something about, should I do that as well? I, you simply, I lost you for just a second. So, so say that the, second. the second question was, uh, in the prayers, they say, um, please bless me with having the Yidam arise in a lucid dream. Should I? Yes. If you can. That experience also. Yes, absolutely. Uh, good questions, my friend. So when we talk about meditating in the dream, there are many ways to do that, right? Um, meditation, the word meditation right now is, is such a catch-all famous phrase. Yeah. But it's, it's a little bit like the word sport, right? I mean, there are hundreds of sports. And so when you say meditation, in, in, especially in the meditative traditions, we have to bring some granularity to it. What kind of meditation are you talking about? Because as you know, there are dozens of meditations. And so you're hitting on several here. So in relation to the first part of your question, I'll get to both of them. In, in the first part of the question, yes. Um, you know, fundamentally working with meditation in the dream is of paramount importance. And in fact, my friend, it's of such importance that the great sage Milarepa, in his song, um, he said, you're not seeing day and dream as differing this is as meditation as it can be. And this is a, a staggering statement that my teacher Kempo Rinpoche unpacked with, with commentary where fundamentally what it means, and when I heard this, it was like, whoa, this, this is a piece of humble pie. If you cannot meditate in your dreams the way you meditate during the day, your meditation is incomplete. Your meditation is incomplete. So eventually what we want to do is exactly create the capacity to meditate at night exactly the same way we meditate at day. And here's the real bonus to this. When you do it at night, 
and Namkai Norba Rinpoche and the Mahamaya Tantra and others talk about the practices you do at night can be up to nine times more effective and transformative than the practices you do during the day because you're working with more foundational dimensions of mind. You, talk, you mentioned the word architecture of mind. That's an interesting phrase. When you're working with these practices, you're working with the ground of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, this is a fantastic selling point for, well, why should I bother with these practices? They're subtle, they're difficult. I can't do them, I don't have time. Well, one reason you may want to do it is because what you're doing with these tectonic plates of your mind are actually more transformative than the practices you do during the day. So that's one thing. Um, to practice on that in this kind of entry level, I usually recommend people do a kind of like walking meditation in the dream or something along those lines. Again, there's in my book, I don't know if you read it, um, the first dream yoga book, I have nine stages of dream yoga practice, you know, more and more subtle, um, fundamentally steps of working with emptiness. Because um, as you know, in the Buddhist tradition, dream yoga is principally brought about as a way to work with these core teachings on emptiness. And that's by the way, I'm gonna, what I'm gonna talk about next week because the entirety of this book that I just published is exactly on this topic, emptiness. So I'll come back to more of that next week. But the nine stages are really nine increasingly more subtle and therefore difficult ways to work with emptiness in the arena of the dreaming mind. So in relation to the second question, good for you on that. Yes, um, using that liturgy, this is interesting. It ties into what Lindsay was talking about in the previous question. What that liturgy is referring to is, is, is literally, and I didn't riff on this because it's a little bit subtle, is in fact what's called pure illusory form. So I didn't, again, just to reiterate what I said with Lindsay, um, there are actually three stages of illusory form. Impure illusory form is, is the fake it till you make it part, that's the entry level, that's, oh, it's just a dream, that kind of thing. That matures into pure illusory form. Pure illusory form is deity yoga, yidam practice just like the liturgy that you're talking about is referring to. And one of the most profound ways to practice yidam practice, deity yoga, generation stage practice, um, is in your dreams, for sure. Because if you can, you know, in the daytime when you're doing it, you're rising as a deity, but you're totally faking it, right? <laughs> you're not arising as a deity, you're still this clunky piece of meat, right? <laughs> in the dream, you arise as a deity, man, because there is no dream body in there. Yeah. And so this is, if you can do deity yoga in your dream state, oh man, um, this is rocket fuel stuff. It, it, and, it, and this is what you want to do, by the way, when you're in the bardo, right? This yeah. is what Pablo Sambhava says in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This is one of the main practices to do in the bardo, if you do this practice, is to arise as the deity, like the liturgy represents. A little bit more advanced, but totally worth the effort. And then just to, to finish, then the last stage, of course, is what I mentioned at the outset. That's called perfectly pure illusory form. And that's when all, you know, all these others, because even, even um, Yidam practice is still conceptual. It's still generated. Um, when you do perfectly pure illusory form, nothing's generated. It's spontaneous. You actually see the world as a dream. That's a little bit postdoc. That's, you know, um, kind of graduate level stuff. But basically what you're saying, just to, to summarize it, absolutely positively, this is what separates dream yoga from lucid dreaming. This is what makes these practices incredibly powerful and actually very inspiring 
when you develop the proficiency and stability where you can start to do these things in the dream state, it's, it's a game changer, my friends. So yes, make the aspirations to do that. Um, you know, learn about how to transition these practices into the dream state. My book may help you a little bit on that. And then go for it. Um, you're definitely on the right track. Something like Thank that. You. Okay. Yeah. yeah, terrific questions. Good for you. Thank you. Well, Andrew, I think you answered everyone's questions. Oh, that's awesome. I stopped everybody's mind. How about Joseph? Is Joseph out there? Does he have something Joseph's to Joseph's on. He's around, but he said he had to leave at se by seven mountain time. So it's just about now. Okay. Uh, let's see if he's still around here. Oh, he's still here. Maybe I'll, I'll cue him in and see if he's got anything to say. At least does he have a, a, a... Hi there. Hey, Joseph. How are you? That was great. Good to see you. Nice to see that beautiful scene from the Sedona Golf Course. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you for uh, uh, the input. I thought that that was really great. Um, and, and it is true, you know, what, what's challenging for people is to understand all of the depth of those three levels of uh, illusory practice. But I, I think that if, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the scientific aspect of that, which I think helps people in the, um, opening stages yes. because just to say this is a dream there's part of us you know if you don't have a depth of belief and you say the words this is a dream the part of you that knows better so to so to speak knows better says oh you're just full of debt right <laughs> and and so um it, it's kind of like uh it's why i don't like affirmations you know, like today I'm going to shoot under par. It doesn't matter that I've never broken 80, but- No, that was gonna say, I'm no, there's, there's a real dream. <laughs> today I'm gonna shoot under par. And, and there's part of you that says you're full of it, you know? So, so it's really helpful to, um, to be as close to realistic about it as you can. And if you can say, you know, what I'm seeing Am I and, and asking these questions, it's kind of using analytical meditation um, at a hot uh, to access uh, Tantra meditation. Yeah. So the analytical meditation is um, am I seeing what I'm seeing over there or in here? And if I'm only seeing it in here, then what's the difference between this and a dream? Exactly. And, and if I'm he, am I hearing it over there or am I hearing it in my mind? And That's if right. I'm only hearing it in my mind, what's mm -hmm. the difference between that and a dream? Yeah. Um, even that, that image you gave uh, another, one, one other time about uh, in a lucid dream, seeing if when you pricked your thumb on a thorn, if it would hurt. Well, are you feeling that in your thumb or in your mind? Exactly. exactly. And so you start moving, you can, you can use that very understandable science, right? That it's light coming in through the sense organ, through the sense, the optic nerve to the sense um, consciousness to the mind, and then say, and as soon as you say that, then, then to say, what's the difference between this is and a dream, and you won't have a, you won't be able to have a good answer. 
Yeah, that's really that's terrific, Joe. Thank you so much. That's helpful. Yeah, thanks for throwing that into the mix. And and, and again, a little, I was going to say a little bit about this next week, but I'll just ping a, a tiny bit now. The third part of my book, the book is in three parts. And the third part of the book is exactly what you just said. It's bringing, because some of these, these proclamations, they're, they're just outrageous. I mean, from a Western perspective, to say that the world is a dream, it's like, oh, yeah, like, right, give me a break. And some of these other spiritual proclamations from the, you know, from the mouths of the awakened ones are just so counterintuitive, so antithetical to the way we see things, that the entirety of the third part of this book, 100 pages, is devoted, in fact, to the science that substantiates this worldview. So, so it's not just spiritual New Age rhetoric or mumbo jumbo. This is what the quantum physicists say. This is what the developmental evolutionary psychologists say. This is what the cognitive neuroscientists say. This is what the philosophers say. And so I, I went to great pains and had a terrific time doing it, drawing in all this literature from around the world from all these different disciplines that basically supports these tenets that are otherwise just seemingly incredulous, outrageous. What, what do you mean this is a dream? Well, it ain't just me. It's all these amazing disciplines that really point to it. And, and you may or may not know this, Joe, but Sonia Rinpoche goes so far as to say, for instance, that when you're learning, um, trying to understand things like emptiness, he goes so far as to say that studying quantum mechanics can be just as effective in understanding emptiness is studying Majamaka, studying the teachings on emptiness per se. And, and then Mingyur Rinpoche also, his brother says, um, you know, learning about emptiness in the daytime classroom is pretty tough. He says the nighttime, the night school, the night dream is actually an easier arena to discover the illusory nature of reality. And so thank you for throwing that in because that is exactly what the third part of the book does, you know, what do the, what do, what, what do the scientific communities have to say about this? And so and when you bring all that into play, again, when I wrote the damn thing, I, I was so struck by the profundity of some of these researchers that it, it, I just have to pause repeatedly to digest the enormity and the sophistication of what they're saying. Because when you really get it, and again, it's not easy to get because it's so contrary to the way we view things, it, it just rocks your world. Um, and it's like they say, you know, in, in quantum mechanics, the same, the same proclamation that the physicists say around quantum mechanics applies to the teachings on emptiness. And that is this, if you are not shocked by the implications of quantum theory, you don't get it. <laughs> if you're not shocked by the implications of the teachings on emptiness, you don't yeah. get it. Which is why, as you know, when the, the Buddha first taught this, what happened? 500 of his senior most students archetypally had heart attacks. Right. Because when they got it, they, they, they were shocked so much that it stopped their egoic heart. So thank you well, for throwing that into the mix. And, well, and, uh, I, I have one, one last little bit that's even more ordinary than quantum mechanics. And that okay. is witnesses of uh, like a car accident, mm. that five people can be standing right next to each other and because we filter what comes in based yeah. on our previous experience, they see five different things. So I like to recommend My Cousin Vinny, <laughs> uh, the, the movie, My Cousin Vinny, because that's about not taking what appears to be right. uh, as it is. And it's a lot of fun and it's, a, and it's an ordinary way to, uh, to get it. That's fantastic. Okay. Beautiful so, contribution, my friends. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Cool.
All right. Anybody else have an offering, question, contribution? Yeah, a, a few questions did come in. Um, and I'll post the link to my cousin Vinny in the chat. Yeah, my yeah we'll have to watch that again. All right. So let's see. This is, um, okay, a chat question. I practice in the Theravada tradition and I am quite experienced. Well, you can imagine my question. I keep, quote, translating. How to deal with this? How to do, what is the this? What's the reference? Um, how to deal with what? The translating between traditions, maybe? Um, yes. Well, if I understand that question properly, and if the person's there and can actually come on and engage me so I, I'm understanding what they're really asking, you know, translation occurs at a number of different levels. And, and I talk about this in my interview with Chris Wallace, uh, Chris Wallace, yeah, Christopher Wallace, the, the amazing Sanskrit scholar who wrote this book, Recognition Sutras. Uh, again, hopefully I'm understanding the question. Translation occurs in several ways, right? You have the classic liturgical translation. Um, that alone is, is, is a, a monumental challenge. And one of the reasons it, it becomes a challenge that is not, I think, articulated often enough is that sometimes the nuance of the material is such that if the person who is translating it is purely an academic and does not have the meditative experience from which these teachings originally rose, it's almost inevitable to have things lost in translation because liturgy, liturgical word by word is just part of it. The main essence of the translation comes from the, from the connection to the experience itself. And that's what makes these wisdom translations doubly, triply difficult because it's not just word by word translation. You're also trying to translate, transmit very subtle experiences, dimensions of mind that can't even be captured by the word. And so if the translator doesn't have a correlative level of experience, something's always lost in translation. The second thing is, and the reason that this is why I mentioned Chris's work, what I like about Chris and other really gifted, um, what I call cultural translators, is that not only do these gifted translators translate liturgically the word, but they translate it into a vocabulary that speaks to the Western milieu, to the Western mind. This is cultural translation. And this is equally as important um, because I think I mentioned this somewhere in the past, you know, when I read these liturgies and these texts and they talk about elephants and chariots, I, I don't live in a world of elef elephants and chariots. I, I live in a, word of, a world of Netflix and Apple, you know, Prime or, or I mean, uh, um, Amazon Prime. You know, and so that's a yet another dimension of translation. And so, yes, I, I mean, the, I bow, deep, deep bow to translators who really have, first of all, the courage to do this kind of work and the humility that's required to do it properly. And, and really a full acknowledgement of these amazing nuance and subtle difficulties, which is why they're like, for instance, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I have, there are at least 10 translations of this text. I have all 10. I've read all of them at least one time, some of them 10 times. They are really different. And it's like by reading all 10 translations, I start to get a deeper sense of what's actually being communicated. So if I'm answering that question properly, that's what I'm hearing from it. Um, liturgical word, word translation itself is, is enormously difficult, especially if the realization is not um, correlative to the person who originally wrote. 
And then you have the whole issue of cultural translation. So if you are working in that arena, I bow to you um, and, and basically applaud your efforts and, and uh, thank you for your courage to do this sort of work. It's extraordinarily difficult to translate these texts properly. So, um, If you're okay with it, I'll bring on the person who asked the question. Oh, great. That'd be perfect. Okay, great. All right, you have the audio. Sorry, I'm not a translator, um, but I do have friends in my community who are uh, very well-known uh, translators Beautiful. from original Pali. And, but I was speaking more about even just trying to uh, make sense of your talking. I mean, I, I know I've experienced you, certain- you, You're meaning, you're talking about me? Yeah. Oh, okay, I mean, got it. Okay. Just from Theravada experiences and right. into, so for example, I wanted to go on a dark retreat and I was going to a place, a Tibetan place, because they're the ones that offer it. And of course they want to screen me and right. want to know about, right. and I don't know that. Right. <laughs> so um, I, that's what I'm talking about. How do I work with this material in a way that's relevant? And I, yeah, that's enough. Yeah, no, that's great. Oh, geez. So I think you pinged on it with the first thing you said is you have to work on it. You have to work with it. You know, one, one, let me just share a story with you. When, when I was doing my really long retreat, I, uh, I, I was really a, a, an irritating kind of student because I didn't take anything at face value. I was always asking endless, incredibly irritating questions because I wanted to know what exactly I was doing and why I was doing it. If I'm gonna spend 16 hours a day for years on end doing these practices, I wanna know what it means to accomplish this practice. I wanna know everything I, I possibly can so that I can do it right. And one of the things that I remember one of my lamas when I asked him, um, he's, he was talking about, well, you know, you wanna make sure you do this thing properly. And so one of the things I asked him, I said, what does it mean to do it properly? And this led into this really wonderful, vast, complex discussion that one of the main take-home points that I derived out of this, Judith, was making, and he said this at the end, he said, make the practice your own. Make the practice your own. And this is a really slippery thing because if we're not careful, usually what slips into the mix here is what Trungpa Mache talked about as spiritual materialism or spiritual bypassing, all these subtle ways are not so subtle where ego comes in and in an effort to make the practice your own you dilute it you water it down you make you edit it so this is a really tricky part um, that requires what you're talking about earlier just this honest work where you're willing to be really humble about the translation project altogether and then willing to do the work to make it happen and so i mean just uh, maybe you can direct me a little bit more with where you want to go with it. But, you know, if you're going from Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, to Theravadan traditions, there's definitely a translation project in effect here, right? <laughs> because even yeah. though we're all part of the same family, right? We're all, we're all peeps, we're all brothers and sisters. The proponents of one tradition speak very different languages and come from very different um, cultural backgrounds and the like. And so this is why when you read these literatures, as you well know, they are really different on one level. On, on more foundational levels, you know, sometimes very often they're speaking same foundational truths, just being kind of expressed from these two different dimensions. 
so I'm not sure that's entirely what you're shooting for, Judith, but all I can say is I, you know, I, I totally understand. I think I understand what you're um, asking and where you're coming from. It takes humility. It takes tenacity. It takes a little bit of humor um, until we can make, you know, we understand what these teachings are really saying. We download them into our own system. And I don't know if you took one way to really work with this is I, um, in the, the course I did with Bob Thurman, and maybe I, if you give the, the address in the chat column, I can send this to you. I drafted a 15 page um, article um, on the 10 points of, of proper contemplation practice, which really relates directly to what you're talking about. 12 or 10 steps uh, um, that I find really helpful and effective and powerful for really taking teachings, incorporating them, metabolizing them, digesting them, so they really do become our own. So for the purposes of time, if that interests you, if you can put your, if you're willing to put your address in the communication box for, for Andy, I can send you this document. Thank you. Um, because I use it now before any deep dive. In fact, like when I, when I do this thing with Yogaville next week, I'll probably send it out to that group. Really, I find these deep contemplation tips to be super effective in terms of working with what I hear, or at least I think I'm hearing from you. Okay? Yes, yeah. yeah, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for your comments and questions. Okay. All right. Oh, and I see um, Judith has her hand raised. So let's call on Judith next. Can you hear me? Hello. Hi, Andrew. Andrew, I have a quick question. Um, okay. Your book, if I'm not lucid dreaming at all, I haven't even got to uh, the first no base, um, would I get something out of your book? Oh, I think so. Yes. In, in fact, like I mentioned at the outset, that's one of the reasons I wrote it, is that it leads to, um, you know, the same insights that you'll derive from lucid dreaming, let alone dream yoga, without ever, ha without ever having to have a single lucid dream. And so, as I mentioned in my brief conversation with Joseph, that the book fundamentally circumambulates the core teachings of emptiness. Everything in this book is centered around emptiness. As in fact, everything is in dream yoga, as in fact, everything in Tibetan Buddhism, in Buddhism period, as far as I can understand, everything circumambulates these core teachings. And so the entire book is basically about emptiness. Um, using lucid dreaming, using a lucid reform, using all of, all the other things, and so uh, for sure, um, I have little doubt that you would derive some benefit from it, even if you never ever have a single lucid dream. Great, thanks, Andrew. Part I wasn't here. Back guarantee. <laughs> I wasn't here at the beginning because you're Mountain Time, and I didn't. I'm Pacific oh, Time. Oh like, yeah, we had we yeah. had this little bit of time thing all together snafu. So yeah, we'll see how that works in the future. Yeah. But yes, in, in short, for sure, I think I think you would get um, something out of it. Really, I great, said with great, time. wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. Cool. All right, and we still have a few more chat questions. If you want me to go okay. through them. Yeah, sure. Fire away. Okay, great. Just give me one second here. Okay, this is from Lynn. I've heard several terms that are all used to refer to mind. Clear light mind, rigpa, nature of mind, tamagi shepa, and so on. Do, do these all refer to the same thing? Mostly, yeah. Yeah, so when, you, when you're working with these, and this is what's so really elegant about these contemplative traditions, you know, it, it's a little bit like, what do they say about Eskimos? You know, they have how many different words for white or snow or something like that. 
So it's similar in, in these contemplative traditions. You know, we use this kind of catch-all term mind, but uh, just like the word meditation, the word mind has, this is a multivalent term, right? It has so many different meanings. Are you talking about sem? Are you talking about lo? Are you talking about rigpa? The words that, that you put together are, are virtually synonymous, and there are others. Uh, uh, Dharmata, Dharma Datu, um, Tathagata Garbha, Shigata Garbha, um, uh, Buddha Nature, you know. These are, interestingly enough, the, the Buddhist tradition has dozens of names for that which is fundamentally unnameable. Um, all these different ways, virtually synonymous, they may have slightly different angles, slightly different um, intimations of meaning, but fundamentally, most of these words that I'm throwing out there, Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Rigpa, Clear Light Mind, they're, they're virtually synonymous. Teasing apart the subtleties is what you do in, in debate and certain things like that. We don't need to go there. But basically, that family of terms is set in, um, in contradistinction to the other spectrum of more kind of gross outer level definitions of mind, which is where you get you know, words like sem and lo and other language. So yes, in short, yes. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, and I saw a hand just went up, uh, Roy. So uh, I'll give the audio to Roy. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Roy. Hey, um, kind of a real specific question. Okay. I've been diagnosed with REM behavior disorder Okay. Uh, about 10 years ago, and it was really kind of getting bad. And, and then I started taking up meditation. It's calmed way down. Um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't stood on my bed and jumped out thinking I was uh, in a helicopter for That's a 10 good years. Thing. Let's put it that way. Right. Good thing. <laughs> um, but my question is uh, with dream yoga or lucid dreaming, pardon mm -hmm. me. Um, is there, do you know anything about the effects of that? Uh, would it make it worse? Would it make it better or? Mm, no, it definitely won't make it worse as far as I'm aware of. Um, I mean, here's, here's the thing. <sighs> Yeah, this is a tricky one. You know, fundamentally, lucidity is a code word for awareness. And if there's one fundamental curative ingredient, psychologically or spiritually, you know, if you want to reduce things, it's awareness. So as far as I'm aware, and I have not read literature to this extent, I mean, I'm a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I get a lot of documents about REM behavioral sleep disorder, hardly, as you might suspect, zippo on lucid dreaming. Because even though it's, it's, it's in the scientific community, in, in the world of sleep medicine, it's fringe. And so I am not aware, I'm doing a little mental Rolodex here, I'm not aware of a single study, that doesn't mean it isn't out there because there's a lot of studies, that, that talks about the, the kind of the uh, relationship of lucid dreaming to, to REM behavioral sleep disorder. But my intuition would be, you know, when you're working with lucidity principle, you're working with bringing about levels of consciousness into previously unconscious domains. And so the reason I, I, I would say that um, it would, in fact, be quite beneficial is because one of the reasons people act out in REM behavioral sleep disorders is because they're not lucid to those dreams. If you're lucid to them, your relationship is radically altered. So you're not going to, you're going to relate to them instead of from them. When you're still afflicted with REM behavioral sleep disorder, you're relating from that space. That's really no relationship at all. You're, you're a so-called victim of that. Uh, 
with lucidity, you're no longer relating from, you're relating to. That's a game changer. Because now that same experience that would get you on your bed and jumping off and you know all the other things that can happen, you're not going to do that. Or you're going to engage it in, in a conscious lucid fashion. So I would actually suspect that if and when studies are done that bring lucid dreaming into this arena of sleep disorders, they're going to find a great added layer of benefits along these sorts of lines. That makes tremendous sense to me, doesn't it? Yes, it, it does. Thank you. Um... And, and as I say, meditation itself, um, in fact, I've even a few times woken up thinking I was meditating, uh, which, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, you but, but, yeah. but I haven't, I haven't been able to lucid dream. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. But right. I would think, you know, I, there, there are very, very few contraindications for lucid dreaming. There are a few um, contraindications and I completely agree with them. People who suffer from any derealization or depersonalization disorders, um, dissociative identity disorders, any people that have these types of um, derealization propensities probably shouldn't do this practice. Um, and there's, I mean, you know, again, very few other arenas where lucid dreaming can be deleterious. Um, so it's not for everybody, but if it's done judiciously with the right intent and it's done properly, it's uh, extraordinarily beneficial. And I would think in this regard, you would find great benefits, actually. Maybe we can someday do a study with you. That'd be awesome, huh? That'd be wonderful. Thank yeah. you very much. That's my friend, good question. Thanks, Ray. Um, I've got two more chat questions for you, Andrew, unless anything else comes in. Okay. This is from Bridge. Um, just like we intentionally intentionally do deity visualization and generate and dissolve visualizations, can anything useful spiritually be done with conscious daydreaming by directing it? Yeah, this is what, this is what Carl Jung talked about is active imagination, um, for sure. Yes, so if I'm understanding what you're saying properly, Bridge, in fact, I was reading uh, just a book just today on, uh, called Extraordinary Dreams, where there was a section in there where they talk exactly about this type of thing, that when you're working, when you're working with uh, deity yidam practices, you know, you're working with visualization in a very particular application. But um, irrespective of that particular spiritual application, the practice of visualization period, i.e. daydreaming actively, is, is in fact a way to exercise a similar type of muscle. Um, and so my, I've, I've done this sort of thing both in terms of, of classic visualization um, deity practices and I've also done it in, in a form of active imagination, which, which Jung, to the best of my understanding, brought about as a kind of way to bridge conscious and unconscious processes. And so I, I think your intuition is proper. Um, as long as there's some type of awareness being maintained with this, then I, it's, it's really a way to cultivate a certain form of shamatha, actually. Um, and so my experience and what I've read in the literature says that yes, indeed, it can be helpful if that's what you're asking. All right, thanks. Okay. Um, and this question is from Barry. In Dreams of Light, you suggest seeing from the back of your eyes. How do we do that? <laughs> you fake it, man. <laughs> yeah, this comes from, uh, I don't know where I got this. Um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I made that one up. Maybe I got it from Reggie Ray. So the way you do that, Barry, is 
it's, it's, here's the thing that's actually easier. And I think I write about this in the book as well. I find it actually easier to look from the back of the head. And, and the idea is you want to create some sense of retreat. And so um, the, the idea is literally, metaphorically, a sensation, a quality of, of perspective of stepping back. Because again, when we're non-lucid, right? One of the things that constitutes non-lucidity is excessive involvement. You're too much on the surface. You're too involved. You're too into it. So the idea of, of retreating to the back of your eye, and I think it was Reggie Ray, I, I got that from him or the back of the head. I can't remember, Sonia Rinpoche. Oh, I, again, I plagiarize from everybody. Plagiarism is the highest form of flattery, so I steal everywhere I can. So I think I got this from Reggie Ray, where um, back of the eye, back of the head, one of the two I got from him, where you know, you're involved with something, and then it's just, it's just this gesture of stance, this gesture of retreat back up, either the back of the eye or back of the head. And then, you know, it's just, you're faking it, but it's just this sense of like, hey, wait a second, I don't, I don't need to be this involved. I don't need to be this close. I can step back. And again, that stepping back is exactly what transitions a non-lucid dream into a lucid one. Because you're in your non-lucid dream, you're lost in it, you're too close. Lucidity, stepping back. Oh, whoa, it's just a dream. I can see it now. It's just a dream, right? Before you're lost in it, now you see. So it's that. It's just a, you know, it's just a, a sensation of stepping, retreating on the spot away from what's actually appearing. And, and again, um, I personally find it easier to, to step back farther to, to the back of my head, which is interesting because that's where the occipital cortex is. And so maybe um, try either one of those and just see which one works better for you. And if you're already in that book, that far in the book, man, you're reading fast. That's great. Thank you. Um, Libby just came in with a raised hand. Okay. So we've got time for one more? Yeah, sure. One more and then we'll call it. All right, great. Muted? I, I'm unmuted now? Yep, you are. Okay. Hi, Andrew. Hi. <laughs> so I have a question about uh, an experience that I have quite um, often when I'm sleeping, and I'm not sure where it falls on the lucid, lucid dreaming scale uh, kind of thing. So, so what it is is that I, so I dream, I dream, I remember my dreams. I'm kind of, I like to dream. I mean, it's a pleasant thing for me most of the time. But, um, but I never really, I don't know if I'm aware that I'm dreaming, except if something starts going wrong, like if something starts, if it turns into something that might be nightmarish, I'm able to stop it and say, wait a minute, this is, this is not going well, and then I can change it and just change it into something else. And then I kind of go into somewhere where I don't know, maybe I'm aware and maybe I'm not. I mean, I don't know, I'm okay with it then. So I, where, what do you think about that? Yes, that's actually, that's an interesting comment. It's, it is in fact a, a degree of lucidity, right? So lucidity occurs across a, a vast spectrum. In fact, mm -hmm. I just read Quite recently, Ed Kellogg and there are a couple of their researchers have this kind of spectrum of lucidity. Ah. Um, and so, and they articulate, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100% lucidity. It's, it's quite interesting, actually. Ah. But the idea here is we have gradations of lucidity. Um, it's not a one size or one shot kind of fits all experience. And so what you're suggesting is indeed a type of lucidity where there's something that clues you in, the unwanted aspect or whatever, 
there's some part of you that says, hey, wait a second, you know, I don't have to go along with this, this is whatever. Again, there's a little bit of perspective that's generated and then you're able to step back from it, you're able to do what you're talking about. That for absolutely positively is a level of lucidity um, and therefore, you know, a, a correlative level of control, some level of being able to step back and, and relate to it differently. Mm-hmm. And so what you can do then, of course, is just cultivate that so that that lucidity just becomes stronger and stronger and stronger so that then you don't even have to ask this question because right now it's a little bit diffuse. It's definitely a lucid um, mm-hmm. gesture, but, you know, is a full-blown 100% lucidity? It doesn't quite sound like it, but that yeah. doesn't in any way diminish the fact and the validity of, of what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do or what you can do is cultivate even more awareness, even more lucidity. Yeah. Then what you do, of course, you know, then you can actually go back into the dream, so to speak, um, with full lucidity and then really start to work with it, really start to transform. Mm-hmm. But what you're exp- expressing for sure, that is definitely a, a, a level of, of lucidity. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I think, I think it'll help just kind of hearing you say that, like validating that it'll help me, and I think it'll help me, you know, psychologically uh, be move towards being more aware. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and that you know, very often when people wake themselves up from nightmares, that's a moment of lucidity. There's some gesture in the dream that says, "Wait a second, man, this is whatever," and then bang. Usually, what happens is they get lucid and they just eject right out. Yeah. So eventually what you can do, like I mentioned, is you can use that as a moment to gain lucidity. And then instead of ejecting all the way out, you actually go back in, um, but with that awareness. And when you're armed with that awareness and lucidity, that's when you start doing, you know, more actual dream yoga type practice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good for you. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks everybody. So I will see you again next week. We're going to go back to one o'clock. We'll see how it goes with participation and that sort of thing. This is our little evening experiment, which may or may not work. We'll see. Um, But next week, we're back to the one o'clock schedule. I'm here. I'm around for the next two or three weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, between now and then, um, wash your hands, wear a mask, and keep your mind and your heart open. So have a great week, everybody.